Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. I don't know if I know another individual who has done more to prevent abortion and help those it hurts than our guest today, pastor and ministry leader, president of Passion Life. Uh, Our guest is John Enzer. John, thank you so much for returning for this episode of Cradle My Heart Radio. Honored to be with you. John, one of the things that I want to talk about today is your work in the pregnancy help movement because um, you have you're still doing that and now doing that all around the world. Uh, That was your transition away from pastoring a local church because I mean I'll I'll let you say the because you know why that transition happened, but um, as we think about the you know the the partnership between local church and Pregnancy Help Organization. Um, talk about how that, how you moved from one to the other, why the Pregnancy Help was uh, a work that you felt that God was calling you to do uh, rather mm-hmm. than pastoring this yeah. local church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that story in my life uh, is a painful one to a certain degree, Um my own experience was that I came to faith in Christ as a teenager and prior to making a lot of bad decisions in my life. So in one sense, you know, I have a great story because um, one of the first things I learned as a young believer is to wait till marriage and be faithful in marriage. And and here I am at 66 years old, and that's my life story. Is I've, I've been with my wife from, from our wedding night till to now and that's all I got and that's uh, that's great that's fine no problem but it did leave me very ignorant at a personal level about what most people experience from uh, sexual immorality and decisions they made in their life both before and after becoming a Christian and it left me totally clueless about abortion. When I was pastoring in Boston, I my general idea of abortion was that it was sort of a topic you discussed in an ethics course, but it wasn't really something that people did. I mean, it was sort of an academic idea rather than a grassroots reality. And my wake-up call was when I discovered that probably 30 percent of the people of my church could testify and did testify with tears and lamentation to their own experience of abortion and how this had 
undermine their ability to to walk in a healthy way with the Lord. So we had first the women stood up and they began to talk with great tears about their one, two, and three abortions. What were the circumstances that uh, that were involved? And then slowly the men began to stand up and say, this was on me. I want the one that wasn't ready. I forced, I coerced, I abandoned, I whatever. And of course, most women have abortions to please a man. And then the final blow came was when people started to talk about their abortions while I was their pastor under my watch. And that's when I had to go back and also join everybody else in repentance. Because according to the Bible, you're guilty um, if you shed innocent blood, but you're also guilty if you close your eyes to it. So I, I repented my way into the pro-life movement, like most people do today, um, either because of the direct experience or because of their tacit approval and, and closing their eyes to it. And that was I was in the second category. So as we became awakened to the reality of abortion and how much it was devastating our marriages and um, and the role of man and woman and husband and wife and even grandparents, uh, we began to ask our question, the question, what does the Lord want us to do? And for the last 31 years, I've pretty much landed on the fact that God calls us to rescue the innocent. Proverbs 24, uh, 11, and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So Pregnancy Help Ministry became a way for us as a church and a community of churches in Boston to live out that call in faith toward God. Let's go out and find the women in our neighborhood, and as neighbors helping neighbors, let's help them find God's resources for them and their baby. And that's been my long commitment to Pregnancy Help centers and uh, and ministries here and around the world. And were you surprised as you stepped into that world of pregnancy help as to what was really driving abortions, what kinds of stories you heard? You know, because you mentioned one thing when you said most women choose abortion to please a man. Hold up. The cultural narrative is it's empowering. I'm going to shout about it. You know, uh, a recent magazine had you know, 40 celebrity abortion stories as to why this was the greater good for all these women. But you're telling me this isn't something that women are really even choosing freely so much as trying to preserve relationship or some other reason. Yes, I think uh, today there's even a movement to avoid the word choice and go back to the word abortion, you know, to be pro-abortion. And I think it's the last desperate act within our culture to take that which has been stigmatized now and to kind of revitalize it as something that you can be happy about and proud about. I have a book in my lab, library, I think it's called the Hap- My Happy Abortion or something like that, mm. you know, where they've tried to, to celebrate this. But my sense is that that's doomed to fail, and it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. My experience is that, and this is true around the world, whether it's China uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Zambia, Guatemala, uh, everywhere we go, is that people don't talk about abortion because they're ashamed of it, and it gives them pain. 
nobody wakes up in the morning and calls their friend or sends them a tweet that says, happy day, I get to go get my abortion today. You know, it's just not reality. Uh, I buy a new car, I tell everybody about it. You know, abortion is not in that moral category. Uh, it's deeply painful. It's a secret because it's painful. They don't know where to go with their grief and their pain and their remorse apart from the gospel. And the proclaimers of the gospel, our pastors and leaders, are also largely silent. So they're just stuck, and they just feel stuck in that grief and in that guilt until someone comes along with a message that is applied directly to the pain of abortion. You so know, that's kind of how I see it. Sure. And, you know, some of the examples that I've heard you share really demonstrate that you don't have to have a person sitting in front of you who is even a Bible scholar, much less uh, even open to the Bible. You you can be very practical in your your approach. I'm thinking about the story of the Cambodian family, where I think the wife actually didn't speak any English at all. If you could share that story with us, it's so striking. Yeah, it was one of the early stories when our church, along with other churches in Boston, started a pregnancy help counseling office, later on became a medical clinic. But this couple from Cambodia came in, and they had nine kids. And all but one of them were present. So, I mean, there was a full house in that center that day. And uh, the husband said that uh, he had he had nine kids, and the oldest was 15, and now he just learned his wife was 15 weeks pregnant, and there's no way that she could possibly have another, another child, and he was desperate for her to have an abortion. And we began a long conversation in that situation, and I kept looking over her, and she was didn't speak English, and her body language is just sad and grieving and feeling stuck, and I just thought to myself, this woman... She's a mom. She gets up. She's got nine kids. She's a mother. This is what gives her joy in life. This is her mission, her calling. And this husband is obviously a good dad. He's got nine kids, so he's just he just needs to be liberated from the pressure. And again, because of the church is working together and the pastor summoning the support, we were able to say to him, you know, you actually have ten kids. And you, you don't really want to destroy any of them. And if you really want to make a decision about saving money, you know, you'd kill the older one. Oh, my God. Of course, he, <laughs> you know, he, he sloughed that off because, you know, you can't kill your kids just to save money. That's exactly what he said to me. You can't kill your kids to save money. Uh, and hello? then the light bulb went off. <laughs> yeah, and then the light bulb went off. But again, because our churches in the Boston area were coming together and they were committed to helping couples like this. They were able to help them find uh, some more supplies, they help them look at his employment situation, see if he needs a second job or a better job, and so on and so forth. And once people have committed to life, a lot of the problems that they're facing, they begin to find the energy to solve their own problems. As they say, people say all the time they can't afford another kid, and then they find out they're having twins, and they just, you know, they just have to adjust. And life is is full of adjustments. And around the world, I think this is true, is that people, once they commit themselves to welcoming children, they find the ways. Mm -hmm. And if we are, as a church, are ready to step into the gaps 
Yes. We can be very life-saving, and we can do it in a life-changing way. Uh, I met a uh, Christian from Finland who was a father to 14, and he said every baby, they have a proverb, every baby brings his own bread. <laughs> you know, God <laughs> God will make a way when you think that yeah. there there is an impossible situation in front of you. So, John, talk about the pregnancy crisis intervention model, because... It, it is a crisis when a young woman finds herself pregnant, and let's just say it's a problem for her. I know, you know, even the pro-life movement wrestles over pro-life as terminology, wrestles over unplanned pregnancy. But it's a problem in the mind of the mother. So how does the pregnancy crisis intervention model address that problem? Well, crisis intervention has become its own uh, professional field of study you know, like nursing or anything else. In the in the broad field of counseling, you have crisis intervention counseling now. You can take courses today in crisis intervention, or the other professional word for it is uh, critical incident stress management. And this whole field of study just started to emerge back in the 1940s um, after the coconut famous Coconut Grove fire in, in Boston. And for the first time, people began to analyze how do people respond to crisis? How do they present themselves? And as a counselor, how can we respond to people in crisis? And literally from the 1940s all the way up till today, the field of crisis intervention has grown at a great pace. And then it specializes into subcategories for for those who are dealing with trauma related to war right now. For example, in Ukraine, there's a lot of people working. Even Samaritan's Purse. If you work with Samaritan's Purse, you're trained in critical incident stress management. Mm. Okay, because that's the environment that you're working in. And in our world, uh, we're dealing with people who are in a pregnancy related crisis. In general, people in crisis present themselves as in a state of stress. They're in an attitude of panic or defeat. They're looking for immediate and quick relief. Uh, Their ability to think and process and problem solve, uh, uh, they're experiencing a time of lowered efficiency in that area. And studies show that people can live in crisis only for about six weeks, and they're going to end it one way or the other, even suicide is a way to end living in a state of crisis. Uh, And so people who are in a pregnancy-related crisis show the same kinds of things. You know, they're afraid. um, They're under a a great deal of pressure. They're looking for quick relief. Part of them wants to have a baby, and part of them feels like they can't have a baby. They're not uh, thinking that clearly. They feel alone. They feel hopeless, and crisis intervention starts there by understanding who you're talking to, what they're experiencing, and what is helpful in lowering those fears and increasing their hope. And basically, the, the life issue tilts on that question. The higher the fear, the more likely you're going to have an abortion. The lower the fear, and the more you can say, I have an optimistic view toward life, things will work out, that baby will live. So the work of pregnancy help ministry is largely the one of finding people in crisis and helping them lower their fears and develop a plan that gives them hope for the future. 
John Enzer is our guest. He's president of PassionLife.org, which is intervening in problem pregnancies and really building a culture of life through spreading the gospel of life all around the world and focusing on the countries where abortion has been devastating to the population, places like China and Cuba and uh, places where the abortion rates are even higher than they are here in the U.S. And uh, as John has noted, only 3% of the abortions every year in the world happen in the United States. It's much more of a moral and population crisis elsewhere in the world. And one of the things that he does is to help churches and pastors to to start pregnancy help organizations in their local uh, in their local area. Uh, his book is titled on his book on this subject is titled "Pregnancy Crisis Intervention: What to Do and Say When It Matters Most." And John, you have a, a half dozen volumes. How many books have you got published now? Uh Six or seven, I think. Yeah. And so this this pre- pregnancy crisis intervention is really such a practical guide. I know that we used it and trained on it when I was working uh, as a volunteer at Fayette Pregnancy Crisis Center in, um, it, actually, at Fayette Pregnancy Resource Center in Fayetteville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And the reason mm-hmm. I want to be clear about that is the original iteration of pregnancy help organizations tended to call themselves crisis pregnancy centers, you know, Mm -hmm. with that sort of inherent knowledge that, yes, most of these women are in crisis, are experiencing this pregnancy as a crisis. Then it came to be seen as a pejorative term that, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, she's not in crisis, she just is pregnant, and stop calling it that, that's making women feel bad, and you know, so a lot of the pregnancy help organizations have moved away from that terminology, but I think they really lose something in that because, as you've as you've expressed it for us here, there really is a crisis. And I think about you know, um, in more of layman's terms, the women that I've spoken with and helped talk it through and think things through and pursue their healing after abortion. You know, there's fight or flight, but there's also freeze. And as you say, you know, that that freeze can last from the moment that you hear you're pregnant until the moment you're walking out of the abortion facility. And then when the freeze is over, you look back and you think, that wasn't even me that was experiencing that. How could that have possibly happened in my life? And it's very difficult mm-hmm. to describe that to, you know, for others who have not experienced something like that. Sometimes it's an effort to distance yourself from your sin. I understand that. But sometimes mm-hmm. it really is an emotional process where a woman may even decide, I'm going to turn off my emotions to get through this. And then our emotions aren't light switches. We can, you know, just turn back on at will. So yeah. I think that this this crisis intervention model is beautiful, and I I really hope that it's taken up by you know pregnancy help organizations uh, because of the value that it has, especially because you know it's something that can be used without a, a lot of additional training. Many volunteers at pregnancy help organizations are feeling shy about sharing the gospel. They have no idea how to confront someone's fears or allay their fears. Um, and this comes along for you after after working and serving and leading pregnancy health organizations for quite a long while. And let's talk about that. I mean, is that, in your mind, the next evolution that needs to happen in pregnancy help? 
Well, it could be, or it could just be returning to our original mm. grassroots. Like you say, we used to call ourselves crisis intervention centers, but it fell out of favor largely because there was some marketing research that made the case that women in pregnancy-related crisis don't see themselves in crisis. But the flaw that a lot of that research is that they did it with college students who weren't actually pregnant, so they were asked to imagine if they were pregnant, how they see themselves. And I have known for many, many years that many, many women who are actively pro-choice in their politics uh, that that goes out the window when they themselves become pregnant. Mm-hmm. Just another level of 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 alteration that takes place when you're in a crisis. But uh, I think it it is more honest and more accurate. Uh, what no matter what we call ourselves, to understand that our work is one of crisis intervention. That we are critical incident stress managers specialized in this one area of pregnancy-related crisis. That's who we are professionally and how we're growing as a movement professionally. And uh, if you are going to send your high school student off to college and they wanted to work in a pregnancy center one day, what would they study? Well, one of the areas that they could study would be crisis intervention, assessment, and management Mm. as a profession. Mm. And then our field fits into that larger category. So I hope that uh, we continue to understand that we are um, dealing with people in crisis, because once you do that, you've got a whole body of academic research that can inform how you counsel and how you assist people, um, and we can continue to grow that way. One of those insights coming from secular textbooks at the college university level is the is the is that you are trained in crisis uh, uh, intervention to recognize that people in crisis are in a crisis of faith and to raise spiritual questions, even if you are yourself not. A Christian, or or you're completely secular. Uh, so, for example, one textbook that's in its eighth edition now uh, says many human service workers regard it as an exposed electrical wire, not to be touched on pain of death, for fear that they will be seen as hmm. either proselytizing for their religion or insensitive to the spiritual beliefs, but to deny or act as if faith are not part of any crisis is to neglect a large part of the crisis response for most people. In other words, they're training people that if you want to help people in crisis, ask God questions, because that's how people process events in their life that are upending and disruptive, whether it's their house burning down, the loss of a child, or an unplanned pregnancy. Mm. That's a great insight for yes, us yes. Have, as we're counseling people, not only because we're Christians, this is part of our sharing of the good news, but it's also good counseling to help people understand, you know, to, to find out how people are processing the crisis. Right. Yes, it's not according to your plan. Yes, it is a baby. Now what are we going to do about it? How can we adjust our life and prepare 
for the changes in our life that this child is going to you know, bring. You know, John, I love that, and I, I think of that quote, and I wish I knew who said it, but, you know, that that fear knocked faith answered and found no one there. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the predatory nature of what the abortion industry does with that fear I think is something that a lot of pastors and ministry leaders may not be aware of. You know, we're, we're rightly morally outraged at the loss of innocent human life, but the the practices and things that women are subject to if they find themselves in conversation with someone who's selling an abortion to them is off the chart. You know, so if you can have one counter conversation to to increase that hope, there's a huge measure of something invaluable you're providing to that woman. We have just about a minute remaining, John. I want to give you the opportunity to um, invite people to your resources and maybe even how they can come alongside and help with what Passion Life is doing all around the world. Yeah, we invite people who want to learn more about crisis intervention, pregnancy crisis intervention, or would really like to look at pro-life as a world missions challenge, which is what Passion Life does, to visit our website, passionlife.org. You can contact me through our website. We have My books are, are, are there. You can pick up a copy of Pregnancy Crisis Intervention if you want to. You can also download our three-page version of it. So everything that we do, we try to keep simplifying to its most basic uh, format. So whether you're in China or Cuba, you don't want to get people 300 pages. You want to give them three pages. So if you are pro-life, if, if world missions are important to you, visit Passion Life and, and join our community of support and get involved in one country or another. If you'd like to learn a little bit about crisis intervention and what you might say to somebody, I would just say without any training, just remember the Good Samaritan figured out how to rescue somebody and he didn't read a book and he didn't have to take a course, but he had to draw near. And if you can just ask somebody, tell me your story and let me help you, you'll figure it out for me. John Anzer from PassionLife.org. Thanks for listening. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.